every opportunity that I've been given, I've been given by women and largely by women business owners. And I think that that's something that is a pretty unique and incredible opportunity from, you know, bussing tables at Jenny's lunchbox, um, getting hired by Jenny herself to working with um, Carrie McNeil at Cole Couture and uh, Charlotte Brand at Florida Outdoor Advertising Association and then Susie Mazolik at Beavis Funeral Home and Barbara Boone with Leadership Tallahassee under Sue Dick's leadership at the Chamber. It's um, a pretty strong lineup. It's an incredible lineup. Yeah. And so I, I think sometimes I get this sense of, of course I can do it because I look at the women that have come before me. From Fiori Communications, it's How I Got Here, a show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors, all the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiore, and in this episode, I speak with Elizabeth Emanuel, CEO of the Tallahassee Downtown Improvement Authority. The Tallahassee native started her career path on a field trip to a funeral home while at Tallahassee Community College, where she was offered a job on the spot by her future mentor. But it was a tragic personal loss during her time as a funeral director that led to the realization that she needed a break and the chance to pursue other opportunities. While her career has taken some turns, it is her caring for people, whether mourning the loss of a loved one or pursuing opportunities to engage in their community, that has made Elizabeth a respected and influential leader. We started by talking about how Elizabeth would describe herself today. Well, I would say I'm a Tallahassee native. I was born and raised in Tallahassee, and I did leave a few times, but thanks to the strongest magnet in the world at FSU's Mag Lab, I believe <laughs> I was pulled back in pretty repeatedly. Um, and I think there's there's never been a better time to be in our community. I sort of refer to myself as a professional enthusiast because part of what I get to do every day is be excited about what's happening in Tallahassee and especially in our downtown, which I really feel is the heart of our community. So you did grow up in Tallahassee. I did. So tell me about those early years. What was family life like for you in our hometown here? Yeah, I um, I kind of joke that I never really made it very far in life. Um, I've sort of always been downtown adjacent. Right. I grew up uh, in the Lafayette neighborhood. I went to Kate Sullivan, Cobb, and Leon. So all my schools were on one street, and a lot of times I could walk to them. So even though I'm a millennial, I still get to say when I was walking to school. Uh, <laughs> if you can relate to the old people that I way, I can. Right? I can. Yeah. But I got to learn the value of a community from a street level at a very young age. Although I will say I spent most of my holidays and all of my summers up in Northwest Ohio. So I was um, largely influenced and raised by my grandparents and my family up there. What what was life up there? I mean, were, did they live on a farm or something? Or my aunt and uncle did. Okay. Um, so it was it was pretty idyllic. Yeah. Um, a lot of you know 
green pastures and cornfields and lakes. Um, I went to 4-H camp with my cousins every summer. So got to learn a lot about cows and pigs and chickens and whatever their projects were. I got to to sort of piggyback off of, um, which was a great learning experience. Um, but it was it was awesome being able to ride bikes all day and living in a, a very small town. Did you do that a lot of summers? Every single one. Wow. My grandparents would drive down basically on the last day of school and pick me up. It was a 16-hour drive. They got it in their head one time that I liked Cracker Barrel, so we'd eat there for every meal. Um, Did you ever master the golf tee game? um, I am not as good as I should be, given how often I've played it. I would think you would have had that down by now. You would think, (laughs) but I am still someone that you could... You could win against. But the farm thing, that's awesome. My grandparents had a farm growing up and we didn't have to go as far. But I I mean, those were magical times and something you can't really replicate. And it's a great experience, I know. Yeah, I feel really lucky that I got to to grow up that way, riding horses and dirt bikes and just kind of really getting to be a kid and play outdoors. Yeah, great combination between that and, and Tallahassee. Nice. It was always there. a good foil, yeah. but it always made Tallahassee seem like it was a much bigger city. So <laughs> yeah. I've kind of always viewed it as a more metropolitan place than I think a lot of other people would. <laughs> right. Do you have any siblings? I do. So I was an only child for 20 years, and then I got the best thing ever, um, which was a family. Um, I got two I, – I sort of never referred to them as my step-siblings, even though we were all much older when we – got together. Um, but two brothers and a sister. So that's been the best thing ever. Okay. Did one of your parents remarry? Or Yeah, my okay. mother remarried. Oh, okay. Um, so she she met her husband, Rick. Right. Um, and I think with anybody that goes through sort of a shift in family dynamics. It's always a little tense at first, um, which is kind of funny to look back on because pretty quickly he became just the most incredible father. I mean, there was never a moment where he wasn't a parent to me. Right. Um, So that was was really remarkable to be able to have that and just be folded in to their family from day one. Were your um, new siblings around the same age as you or different? Yeah, they're actually um, the oldest son and I are the exact same age. We're like a month different. Um, and he went to Childs. So we kind of lived these parallel lives for our, you know, our entire lives um, and then became a family. So it was always kind of funny to yeah. tell people who my mom had married and <laughs> who my family was. Right. Um, but they're they're wonderful. So they're 32, 30, and then 18. Okay. Um, so my sister's the youngest, but she's also the wisest and the most mature right. without question. So she's even now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's <laughs> she's, <great. laughs> she's a really good rock for our family. So what kind of kid were you? I think I was a very curious kid. Always had a lot of questions and big imagination. I spent most of my time reading. Um, What'd you like to read? Probably stuff similar to what I still like to read. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) I swear I've grown up. Yeah. Um, But science fiction. So I love to wrinkle in time and 
I guess the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe isn't necessarily science fiction, but no, there's some elements fantasy, of fantasy though. in yeah. there. Um, so it was, you know, really, honestly, whatever I could get my hands on. Were you good in school? Um, early on, yes, absolutely. When did a change occur? Um, I had some struggles in high school. Um, they probably started realistically in in middle school. Um, there were some subjects that I would excel in, naturally literature uh, and, and more of the English. Um, I did fairly well in science, but I always really struggled with math. And that that just got progressively more and more difficult yeah. throughout school. I hate to be a stereotype, but I was exactly the same way. Oh, really? Yeah. I would have thought not because as I've been researching names, statistically feminine names have lower math scores. Really? I really fed into that stereotype. <laughs> I don't know what your excuse is. I, I just wasn't good at it. I think, too, some people kind of – I bought into that I'm good at this side, mm-hmm. so I'm not that good at the other side. Yeah. And I made myself feel better about it that way, I guess. I think I did that, too, for a long time. Yeah. So – so you went to Leon High, mm-hmm. and you were student body vice president. <laughs> yes, I was. So uh, tell me about those years. What was high school like for you? Um, I really enjoyed Leon. It's history and its sense of community. Um, it was one of those places that was really inclusive for a lot of things. Um, so I got to be a part of it. I think every club I could join, I did. And then being with student government was just a really great foundation. There was a a group of us that had been friends for a number of years that sort of rose through the ranks with student government, sort of always cheering each other on and saying, what do you want to run for this year? Okay, I'll run for this. And and being very strategic about keeping our alliance together throughout high school. But we got to accomplish a lot of really neat things together. Okay. Do you have any examples of that? What what kind of things did you accomplish? Um, so we got to do a Habitat for Humanity build our senior year. Um, we put on a lot of festivals and events, Winterfest, um, which was a great fundraising and band showcase for all of the local talents, yeah. all of the dances and pep rallies. Well, that's fun. Um, and it's, it's really neat looking at Leon now to see how incredible they are. I mean – those kids make us look tired <laughs> with their ability to fundraise and support community causes. But just getting to be a part of that and starting that from a young age was really impactful. Okay. So. Do you ever do any of the um, the reunions, the Leon reunions? Yeah, actually, um, funny enough, my husband planned the last one. He was actually senior class president. I will say he was the caveat. Um or the interloper in our alliance. He was so not he in was it the from president the start. And you were vice president. He was president of senior class. Okay. I was student body vice president. This is a very important Okay, sorry, yeah. Make sure we all understand <laughs> the difference. So he was okay, yeah, so you what you're doing here is making sure that he, everyone understands that you had a higher position than I him, did. Right? Yes. Um and I thought that my ideas were better and his weren't. So I spent <laughs> a lot of time voting him down because he actually he beat my um my, one of my best friends for that position. So and he so wasn't he, part of the alliance. He was not. He came in at the 11th hour, this new candidate, rookie, had never been an SGA. Um The nerve. 
Right, right. And he, and he beat her. And so it disrupted a lot. Well, obviously you forgave him at some point. It wasn't until a number of years later. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you were able to overlook that. And, We've uh, all matured. Move on, yeah. Do you think leadership came naturally to you? Was it like innate in your personality or did you have to kind of push yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit? I've always had to push myself out of my comfort zone. Um, but I think it there probably is a lot of innate tendencies that point in that direction. I'm always the person that says yes. And I think sometimes that's how you end up in leadership positions. You you say yes enough. Just and, a willingness. Right. Absolutely. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, but I've I've pushed myself a lot to get to where I am. So after high school. You went to Tallahassee Community College, right? Was it immediately after? No, it was actually um, close to a year later. Okay. What did you do in between? So I um, I took nearly a, nearly a gap year um, and actually moved to several different places um, doing volunteer and mission work. Okay. So I spent the majority of my time in Cuba and then, well, actually, interestingly enough, I spent the least amount of time in Cuba, even though I was supposed to spend more. It was in 2006 when Fidel Castro ceded his power to Raul. Right. And so we actually um, had to leave the country it's immediately. Yeah. yeah, which was unfortunate because it wasn't a dangerous place. It was a, a beautiful, incredible place filled with wonderful people. And I remember sitting in the, the office um, at the, the embassy. They were trying to schedule flights to get us out. And I kept telling them I'd shake my head in the back of the person talking and say, I don't want to go. It's fine here. Everything's fine. Stop me in. Um, but we ended up having to leave a few weeks earlier than we were supposed to. And then I went on to Guatemala for a number of months and lived there, working with a, a great local group, uh, the Monroes. They'd started Solomon's Porch. And so we got to do a lot of really neat projects, digging ditches, um, AIDS, education. Um, so it was hands-on helping people in these communities? It was. It was. It was very hands-on. So you're coming alongside um, ministries that are already existing and you mm -hmm. come down to help out for a while? Yeah. I mean, and, and some of the things were, you know, it's hard to tell what had greater impact, sewing seat cushions for a coffee shop or trying to teach people to brush their teeth. You know, I have some, some yeah. very mixed feelings about some of the things that I was involved with, but it was a really life-changing experience. And then went on to Uruguay and stayed there for a number of months. At the time, the Bishop of Cuba, the Episcopal Bishop, was also the Bishop of Uruguay. And so he spent six months in one place and six months in another. So we tried to kind of follow along his travels. And um, he was very involved with AIDS education there as well and uh, homeless issues. So ran a soup kitchen. So one of my childhood best friends and I just kind of spent a number of months living and working with them. So did you go as a big group or just the two of you went? It was just the two of us. Wow. Yeah. And it's kind of wild looking back thinking how young that we are. That was pretty adventurous. Yeah. How trusting our parents were to yeah. say completely fine for you to go. So what was your motivation to go? Why, you know, right out of high school, did you want to put things on hold to go do that? Well, they'd, 
I think we'd come up with it the summer before. I'd been going to Cuba in the summer since I was 15 on mission trips. Okay. Um, so I'd had a longstanding relationship by that point with a number of the families there. Okay. And the year before they'd presented us with this, I think we probably presented it to them looking back to say, we'll come live with you. Won't it be helpful? <laughs> um, but it was it right. was great. So I'd, I'd actually didn't apply to any colleges because I knew I was going to do this. Um, and we would see when I got back where it would go from there. Right. Do you feel like that time impacted your outlook on things moving forward? Absolutely. I think when you have those kind of experiences at a young age where you're sort of forced to be a little more independent because you can't just go home um, and it's actually very difficult to call home even, um, but you you learn to depend on yourself and on those around you and on the kindness of a lot of other people and you you bring yourself up. So when you when you got back, then you decided to go to Tallahassee Community College mm-hmm. and uh, get your AA there. How did that go? It went miserably. Um, I failed out of my first semester there. So that was that was really difficult. Why do you think that happened? I think it was a number of things. Um, assimilating back to American culture, even though we weren't gone that long, it was very hard to get back into a consistent routine because I'd been very flexible with how my days were and the projects and Suddenly, new impatient deadlines were very difficult to tackle. Um, It also was determined then that I had a learning disability. So I found out um, that I had a math-specific learning disability and ADD. And so um, it was difficult at first, but then finding tools to become a better student changed everything for me. Yeah, I was going to ask. So when that was determined, you were given tools, allowances, things that would allow, help you be more successful? Yes, absolutely. There was a great resource at FSU for learning disabilities. Um, I know and there's I, a testing center there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I spent time there and they had, you know, these are how you handle what you're dealt moving forward. And it it was a real game changer. And being at TCC, the teachers were really accommodating and helpful with that understanding and kind of working through what it means to learn differently and being able to learn better. Right. And that's so funny. That's why one of the reasons I love having these conversations, because what I know of you and, you know, um, well-spoken positions of leadership, high achiever, I would have thought learning was never a problem for you. It was always a struggle. And I think I was good at talking my way out of it. When I was in high school and and younger and saying this wasn't really an issue and it was just attendance, it couldn't have been, you know, the fact that I couldn't learn. Hmm. Um, But being hit with the level of accountability that you are when you are placed in in college, um, it became apparent very quickly that I had a real issue. Hmm. So... So you made it through, you got your AA. Yeah. And after, after that initial difficult semester, I think I got president's list and dean's list for my academics every semester moving forward. But I dedicated a lot of time to learning correctly and spent a lot of time studying. And Mm. I still do. Was it frustrating for you when you realized how much easier it could be approaching it the right way? You know, kind of the struggles you had earlier and you wish you would have known that sooner? Absolutely, without question. But it was also really liberating because then you think, you know, as long as I have a plan and I have the right tools and I have right. the understanding of 
the professors and the teachers, it was so much easier. I don't have to do that anymore, right? right. I mean, I don't have to deal with those issues. I can, I can learn and yeah. feel good about it. I was working smarter at that point, not necessarily right. harder. Yeah. So you finish up your AA degree. Mm-hmm. And then at what point do you decide to pursue funeral services as a as a career in your next stop in your education? So it happened before I graduated from TCC. Um, I had thought after spending so much time in different um, facilities for people with AIDS that I would study something more helpful like nursing or epidemiology. Um, And one of the prerequisites for that was actually a class called thanatology. It's the study of death and dying. So I I took that class while I was at TCC. And um, interestingly enough, the teacher always did field trips to funeral homes. So I showed up for the field trip and sat in front um, because that's, you know, one of the things that they tell you to do if you have a hard time concentrating. Right. You sit in front, you take notes while you're right. you're learning. You ask questions to better digest the information. So yep. I did all of those things. And afterwards, the woman giving the presentation pulled me aside and said, would you like a job here? And I looked at her and thought, lady, you're crazy. Um, but then I, I thought more about it. And she said, no, no, really, we don't have a lot of young people in the industry. We don't have a lot of women. I mean, she just had this incredible story about caring for the community and breaking glass ceilings and what it meant to be a funeral director. Yeah. And it started really resonating, the, the care and compassion. And then she told me what they paid, and it, was, it wasn't so bad. Yeah. Um, so I took her up on it and went in for an interview um, and was hired as a – a staff associate is what they called them. Right. And this is at Cully, right? It, yeah, it's at Cully Meadowood. And, right. and the woman was Susie Mazolik, just to name drop. But she's she's one of the most recognizable figures in the industry. And not just because she's tall, but because she's an incredibly <laughs> wonderful woman. Um, and she took a chance on me and I took a chance on her. And it, it changed my life. Yeah, so she obviously saw something in you more than just asking questions. But you know, saw kind of a spark and an interest in you. And what did that mean to you that she she recognized that and pursued you in that way? Um, I think it was one of the first times in my life that that sort of happened. And I was, I've always been very open to whatever the universe is, is pushing my way without sounding hokey. But I just, I think you yeah. have to be open to the fact that these things get put in your life, these opportunities for a reason. And this seemed like a, a good one. Um, so I thought I shouldn't just brush this aside. I should really pay attention to what she's saying and what she sees in me um, because she's also not one to to do something in that manner. As it turns out, she's a very, right. very sensible woman. Um, it was the right time in all circumstances to do that. So it um, – it was a pretty incredible opportunity. I got to do a lot of things at a very young age. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so you're still going to school mm-hmm. and studying general studies, right, for your yes. AA. And then at, at the same time now you're you're learning an industry, learning, mm-hmm. you know, kind of entering a career at the entry level, right? Yeah. So what kind of activities were you doing? What were you – how were you helping? How were you learning the funeral services industry? Yeah, it was, it was a great – 
education early on in what that job entails um, because I learned firstly that it's a 24-7 job. So I worked the shifts that were not as uh, appealing (laughs) to other people. (laughs) Um, I did removals, which is actually when you go into a place where someone's passed away um, and you take them into the funeral home's care. And that can happen at 11 a.m., 11 p.m., 3 a.m. It might be a nursing home or the scene of an accident. In most cases that I'm doing it, it was a very physically demanding job as well. Um, So you'd go out with a team of two people in a cot and you would physically take that person back into your care or in some instances, the medical examiner. Um, But it was it was an interesting physical challenge. in some instances, because unfortunately, not everyone passes away very peacefully in their homes. So at the same time that I was um, working as a staff associate at Cully's, I was also an embalming apprentice. So that's something that I've probably done the longest. And I think it's one of the most important aspects of the funeral industry. So what is embalming? Um, It is a method of, of cleansing the body and um, retarding decomposition. So it's essentially to restore a lifelike appearance um, in a very sanitary way. Um, but it's it's a very um, scientific process of ensuring that you've got the right balance of chemicals, that you understand what um, different aspects surrounded the death so that you can better equate for it um, to a store that lifelike appearance, but it's, it's one of the things that I miss the most about the industry. Um, sometimes I, I sort of, when I need to calm down, I talk myself through the steps of embalming. (laughs) Um, but it's, it's a very respectful process that has a great reward and benefit to those people that see their loved one looking at peace. Right. After you finished up at TCC, and um, then you went on to um, continue your education at Mid-America College of Funeral Services, Mm -hmm. and that's in Indiana, Mm -hmm. right? So tell me about your experience there and what that was like. Yeah, um, I sort of joke that mortuary school is exactly as creepy as you think it would be. It was a lot of people in trench coats, surprising amount. Um, it was also Indiana, so it was much colder there. Right. But um, there was an element of a mortuary school that attracted people um, for whatever reason uh, that were sort of misfits. Um, but then there was a large percentage that were also second and third generation business owners. So it was a really interesting class dynamic to have people that certainly had a morbid curiosity. I think everybody in those classrooms did without question. Um, but our our classes, while I graduated with a bachelor's, um, looked sort of like college classes, but a little different. So it was a, it was a great time, um, a fascinating time. I, I really do, with all of my challenges, um, I love to learn. And so this was just the most interesting set of classes. We had funeral law and religious practices and psychology of grief and family counseling and restorative art, which um, was probably my favorite class. You actually end up modeling features, um, human features, and learning how to restore um, features in the in the case that someone may have lost those and however 
they may have passed away, um, but you learn a lot about color composition and skin tone and facial shapes, and it was a fascinating yeah. practice. Tell me how important that is to a family to see their loved one the way they, you know, more like the way they remember them and not not the result of what may have happened to them. Yeah, I think it's it's hugely important. And, and I know that personally and professionally to be able to look at your loved one and see that they look like themselves, although it's very difficult because you learn pretty quickly in mortuary ecology and in life that some of those features that bring the most animation are a person's eyes and their mouth. And when you don't have those open um, and you don't have the reactions you do, no one's ever going to look like themselves. Um, but being able to restore those lifelike features and part their hair the correct way and make sure that they were wearing the right tone of blush or lipstick or you know, their skin wasn't too different than what it would be as their loved ones remember them, it, it brings a great sense of comfort, especially if it's they've been sick for a while or if there's unfortunate circumstances surrounding their death that just feels very important to give people that closure. Right. So you continued your high achievement there. I know you said it was a small school, but you mm -hmm. were valedictorian. Yes. Regardless of how many people were there. It was very small. Though. That's still an accomplishment. It was. Yes. I worked very hard and I had a, a great team of friends. Um, we were all, I guess, looking back on it, nerds. Um, and we spent a lot of our time together studying. We'd have all night study parties. Um, I created a flashcard system for the entire class so we could all quiz each other. We were very into learning. You know, on, on weekends, we'd go home to their families' homes and visit their families' funeral homes and see, you know, what it was like in other areas. So not a typical college weekend kind probably of activity. not at all come <laughs> to find out. So who knew that that's not what most people do that's on the right. weekends in college. So whose funeral home are we meeting at this weekend? Right, right. exactly. Right. Um, and we'd all pile in a car and go, yeah. you know, go see how it was done. And you'd walk through their facilities and talk to their parents and say, in a way, that's pretty in awesome, situation. right? I mean, that's, that's pretty cool to at, in college to, to have a passion for something that much where you just like can't get enough of it and you love learning about it and I mean, not everybody gets that. So that's we were way too career oriented, too young. <laughs> yeah. Um but it was it was also an industry where most people had grown up working. So it was sort of the thing that they knew. Um and it was it was really exciting, which sounds odd, um, but to be a lot around the that level of of interest and experience and being able to understand how differently things work for different communities and religious sects. It was just a fascinating experiential learning opportunity. Right. Yeah. So after you earn your degree to practice, there's you have to be licensed, right? So that is mm -hmm. that I assume that's a separate process. Yeah. And it it's there's a national licensure. You take a a national exam um for both the arts and um, the arts and sciences of being a funeral director, as well as some of the other components. So it's um, split into two segments and it's four hours each. It's a pretty grueling experience. Yeah. Um, and it's it's the national funeral director exam. And then depending on what state you go to, there's a separate state licensing. And certain states have certain requirements for when you can take the test. In Florida, you have to be um, working, you have to work for a year prior to being able to okay. take that. 
um, but you had to declare it when you graduated. So I, I graduated and I think I declared like four or five different states that I thought maybe I would practice in because right. I was pretty sure at that point I wasn't going to come back to Tallahassee until I realized how difficult it was to get a job in the funeral industry. Um, I'd really taken for granted the fact that Susie took a chance on a young woman and it is, you know, changing now and we've seen a great evolution, but largely a male dominated, family dominated industry. So when you would send out resumes or inquire at funeral homes, they weren't they weren't interested in you because of being a young woman? Yeah. Um, and lack of connection. You know, they really want to be able to vouch for your character and who you are and who you know. Um, so I felt lucky I got I was the only one in my class to get an interview in a very prestigious funeral home in Louisville, Kentucky. And I sat down with them and we had an interview for an hour. And at the end of it, he looked and he was like, well, you know, we're not going to hire you, but you'll be all right. You make great eye contact. And it was like, what what, no, I, I, I want this job. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I understood this to be an interview. And he was like, well, we just wanted to meet you. We like to know who you are and we'll keep your resume on file. So a year went by and I got a phone call from this funeral home and they offered me a job as a secretary. Really? That was that was as good as it was going to get. And so that was a pretty eye-opening experience to think this isn't as easy to make it in yeah. this industry as as I thought because I had such powerful role models coming up. Right. And that was that was really tough. Yeah. So do you think it was cuz I understand the I guess a little more the relationship and we don't know you, you're not from around here, mm -hmm. you know, you don't come from a family that everybody here knows and that they'll trust you more easily. I guess maybe I sort of understand that a little bit more, but the, the other parts, I don't think that that still was going on. Yeah. And this wasn't, you know, this wasn't 50 years ago right. when you would expect for this. It was 10 years ago. Right. Um, Do you think it was more gender or age? I think it was both. It's very difficult being both a young woman in an industry that's largely dominated by older men. Um, so that was that was difficult. You were up against someone that had done it longer and knew better. Um, and there because there was physical demands of the job, I think they'd look at someone smaller in stature and think, there's no way she can do it. And it didn't matter that I had years of experience on my resume or was the top of my class. You know, it was very much not what they were looking for um, because I wasn't, I mean, it felt to me like because I wasn't an old man. Yeah. So did you come back to Tallahassee to take a job at Beavis Funeral Home or did you come back to Tallahassee and then apply and it worked out from there? Yeah, I came back to Tallahassee a little defeated, to be honest. I'd exhausted all of my options in three other states um, and came home because at the time someone said, I know Rocky Beavis, I think I can get you in. Um, and, and that's unfortunately, unfortunately what it takes. Um, but I, I went in and, you know, had three copies of my resume. I think I sent it to Rocky in advance. Um, but he is one of those people that cares not at all about what's on paper in the best way. He's more interested in who you are as a person and how you handle yourself and if you would be a good advocate for those families and for his business. Um, so I, I don't, I still to this day don't think he ever looked at my resume. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
But he knew you were the kind of person he could entrust with the families that they care for. Yeah, I spent a few hours talking with him and some of his other funeral directors, which at the time were all men. Um, So I was one of the first females that they'd hired in a number of years. There had certainly been other females that had worked in the funeral director position. But it's interesting coming in and being in my early 20s um, in a very male-dominated industry. But they took the time to listen to me, um, which was nice. So it was it was a good fit for me to be there with them, with a firm that was locally owned and operated, um, that had a really good understanding of our community. Right. And I would imagine with somebody like Rocky that him taking you under his wing and if he was with a family and saying, this is Elizabeth, you can trust her, that, that helps bridge that gap until you could prove you know, it. Prove it, yeah. It's a lot of proving it. I mean, it was absolutely almost relentless having to prove myself to every family that I sat in front of to say I was worthy of their trust. And it's not just because I was a young female, although sometimes it was that. Um, But even just being new to the industry, there's a level of difficulty um, in people's trust in your abilities. Um, So that was... Especially in... Such a stressful time. There's nothing worse than when a family comes into a funeral home. I mean, they're having the worst time in their life. So you want to be the most trustworthy person and the most worthy person to take their most loved possession into your care. Um, it was not a light responsibility by any stretch of the imagination. So it it was very gratifying because you wanted to prove yourself every day to every family that you were worthy of their loved one's care. Hey everybody, I'm very pleased and proud to announce that How I Got Here is now sponsored by Socially Loved TLH. When I realized that the podcast may actually be getting listened to, I wanted to find a partner that would have the same general goals and benefit from reaching our local audience. That's why I'm so excited about connecting you with Socially Loved TLH. You have probably seen their books around town for years, but wait till you see what's coming in April. It's a similar concept reinvented in a new and exciting way. I encourage you to be part of their new Facebook group, Socially Loved by TLH. Just search it, answer a few questions, and you're in. Join your neighbors, including me, who are already on board and sharing stories about the people and places that make Tallahassee special. Check it out today. Again, that's Socially Loved by TLH on Facebook. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. So tell me about that. Now you're at Beavis, you're not in school, you're not an apprentice, you're a funeral director, you're responsible for what's happening with these families. Tell me about how that went and, you know, how, what that process was like of, of learning your job that way. Yeah. And it, you know, I was lucky because I had learned, um, from the very bottom of the business, what it meant. Um, and it was a lot of ensuring that you're there every step of the way that you're very consistent with families. So, in my mind, it was better if you were there at 3 a.m. when the death occurred, that you were also there at 8 a.m. the next morning or whenever they wanted to come in um, to keep that consistency going. But it was it was an incredible opportunity being in Tallahassee versus being in other communities because in larger communities, they might have a Jewish funeral home and a Hindu funeral home and a Catholic funeral home. But in Tallahassee, there was just funeral homes. Right. And so we got to experience a lot more of the incredible cultures that exist within our own community. Um, and that was that was a really 
impactful thing to learn from, to be able to understand the different rights behind the different religious sects um, and what it meant to those families and being able to to honor that and follow that step by step um, was a lot of great learning. But it was extremely taxing. I mean, it's a 24-7, 365 day a year job, especially when you're the new person. You worked at Beavis for how long? Um, five and a half years. Five and a half years. So tell me, did you had you decided that you were ready for a career change or did the position of the chamber present itself and that was just something you really wanted to pursue or how, what happened there? Um, I'd had a really challenging year. Um, I had, when you come home and you work in the town that you grew up in, everyone that you deal with is your family um, or, you know, a friend of the family or their family is your friends. So sure. you're never dealing with a stranger. And that that can be really difficult, especially as a young person, when unfortunately the statistics are that, you know, people in that age group pass away um, in very unfortunate circumstances. So I'd, I'd lost a few people close to me. Um, and I was the person that was lucky enough to to take care of them. Um, and that's something that I I will always, always treasure, but it does make it really difficult. Um, my stepfather passed away unexpectedly, um, actually on my birthday. Oh, sorry. And so that, that was something that really defined my life. There was kind of a, a before and after um, from that moment of everything where you go through a fog when something like that happens. Um you lose sort of your sense of self. My mother lost her sense of self. She lost her better half. She lost everything that she had ever wanted. Um, and you can't separate yourself from that. So it's it's really difficult being in an industry where you are supposed to help people through the worst time in their lives and you're having the worst time of your own. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I realized that I couldn't be a good funeral director in that circumstance um, anymore. So this happened – during that your last the last year you were at Beavis, it did, yeah. And as much as I tried um, to think I can pull it together and I can be there for my family, I just started seeing how much I had I had lost um, and how much I had lost out of because of that job. You know, there was they'd always go to the Florida Georgia football games, and I never made the time to go because I always thought work was more important. Um, and you realize when you no longer have that opportunity to go to those family games that works the least important thing. Um, and so it was it was a big perspective shift that happened. But I also wasn't I wasn't my best and I knew it and I knew that that was an industry that you have to be your best at. Right. You have to um, put the face on no matter what. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it can't be that you see your loved one and every person that comes mm-hmm. in. Um, and that's that's exactly what was happening. So I wasn't able to separate myself from work any longer. Um, so I went and talked to the one person that didn't know me professionally. I'd never taken care of anyone in her family. Um, and that was Barbara Boone with the chamber, with Leadership Tallahassee. And I, I didn't tell anyone else at the funeral home. In fact, Susie was on vacation that I was going to do it. But I just said, what else should I do? I'd asked a number of other people that I really respected and they gave me answers like hospice and and related fields that I just wanted a clean break. I didn't want to go to another funeral home or or be around 
that industry for at least a little bit because I'd, I'd done it for so long at this point. I mean, really, it was nearly a decade. Um, and I was very young for that. So I wasn't even sure that I could do anything else. I wasn't right. sure how those skills would translate into anything. Um, but it was it was a great conversation sitting down with Barbara. I'd spent the year before um, in leadership Tallahassee as a graduate of class 32. Uh, so I got to know a lot about the Tallahassee community in a way that I'd taken for granted most of my life and thought sure. there's so much more out there um, that I want to be a part of. And and if anybody would know what I should do, wise Barbara would. Um, <laughs> she is wise. She is very wise. <laughs> so I sat down with her and she said, and again, a, a very serendipitous moment that um, there might be a position open with leadership Tallahassee. And would I be interested in applying for it? And it was like, without question. I mean, absolutely. That felt like, you know, God was shining in on that moment to say, here is the most extraordinary opportunity you could be offered outside of a funeral home. Right. You took a job as a program coordinator with Leadership Tallahassee. Mm -hmm. Did that position exist before or was it new? Um, they had sort of created it. Um, with board direction, they'd had, you know, the history of leadership Tallahassee had been going on for 32 years, um, and they'd had a number of part-time people in positions similar to that, um, but this was an opportunity to do it full-time. And for those who don't know, tell me what leadership Tallahassee is all about. It's all about cultivating community servants. So um, getting a diverse group of people from all different walks of our community together um, in a flagship program, which is Leadership Tallahassee. And you spend an entire year going through different parts of the community from healthcare to government to education to arts and culture to science, um, learning about the different industries and the different buildings and support services for all of these venues. Um, and you network with people that you would otherwise never have a chance to really get to know as well, because it's one day a month. It sounds like your year was very impactful to you in kind of open up your, opening up your eyes to opportunities you didn't realize existed. And buildings that you drive by your entire life and you think, well, I know what that is, but you have no idea. <laughs> um, it's incredible the things you take for granted being from a community that you never have the desire to learn until you're forced to learn them. So I felt like I got a lot out of that program, even though I was born and raised in Tallahassee, because it opened up my eyes to what our community really has in it. Right. Both buildings, programs, and people, right? Absolutely. People you would not intersect with normally. Absolutely. And I think, you know, some of the, the coolest things have come from those friends that would have otherwise never, never been my friend. I was uh, fortunate enough to go through Leadership Tallahassee uh, last year as part of um, Class 36 and um, had a couple of my classmates on the podcast already and people, you know, in some cases I wouldn't even have known who they were otherwise. And that that has been a huge blessing and benefit of the program. During these years while you're at um, Leadership Tallahassee, you're also volunteering a lot, which you still are. But... Some of the places you volunteered were, were Tallahassee Welcomes You. You were a volunteer catalyst with the Knight Creative Community Institute, known as KCCI, a member of Sunset Rotary, fellow Rotarian here, 
Um, and you served on the board of the Tallahassee Symphony Orchestra. I mean, you were you were doing a lot of stuff. Um, so how did you find time to do all that while you were obviously involved in a in a busy job as well? I slept very little. <laughs> yeah. um, it was which is sustainable for some amount of time, right? <laughs> Well, it was kind of a, a, you know, a trick that I'd picked up from the funeral days of needing very little sleep. Um, and actually, it was it was Rocky that insisted when I moved back to Tallahassee that I get connected um, and that I volunteer. You know, I think funeral homes are some of the most community minded. Um, and he he's the one that suggested I become a Rotarian. And that right. was that was a great experience. Um, and then without question, it's a priority of Barbara. Um to encourage people to serve in the community. So I got to do a lot um, with her blessing and, and sort of on Leadership Tallahassee's behalf that helped build community. Because if that's one of the things that they say the graduates need to be doing, they also give their employees time to do it. That makes um, sense. And the yeah. tools to do it. So, and you may not have realized it at the time either, but all this volunteering time and being involved is also helping lay the groundwork for your next career opportunity. Um, you left in February of 2019 when you were named the CEO of the Tallahassee Downtown Improvement Authority. Um, you were one of 23 people who applied for that position. Obviously, it was a pretty crowded field and you were one of the younger applicants there again. I mean, honestly, what did you think your chances were at the beginning? How, where was your mind at when you were first applied for that job? You know, it was one of those things that, again, just felt like the right time at the right place. I, I went into Barbara's office um, the afternoon that the idea kind of was thrown at me um, or came to me and said, I think I have to do this. And she, in her very supportive and wise way um said are you are you sure you know that you really want to step into this now you don't want to give it a few years um and then go right. for it um but as a board member I, i'd been on the board for about six months um i'd been living downtown for a few years in a condo with my husband so i'd really come to love downtown and the assets that were there and it just was a very strong compulsion to think I can do this and I can show people how incredible this tiny little core of our community really is, um, the businesses, the restaurants that are there. But I couldn't tell anyone because it's government in the sunshine. So I couldn't tell one of my other board members, hey, this is a crazy idea, right? I shouldn't go for this um, because you can't have those kind of conversations with them. So instead, I created a plan. Um, and it ended up being this 17-page document of exactly how I would do the job and what I thought the greatest strengths, weaknesses, assets, um, and challenges were going to be in that position and what what we could do to revamp the organization. Um, and, and when I went in for an interview, I presented the board with that plan, um, and we talked through how I would implement it, and I've stuck to it. It's been nearly a year later, yeah. um, and the, the 10 goals that I had coming in are still largely the key priorities for the organization. I mean, I've spent 
an incredible amount of time listening to other people and talking to other people that have helped shape that. It isn't just, you know, coming in with a plan and thinking I'm sticking to it without <laughs> paying attention to the world around me. Right. Um, it's it's certainly evolved, but it's it was a a scary decision to put my name in for something that was so front facing. That was largely outside of my comfort zone. Right. Um, this would put you squarely in the spotlight. It did. Yeah. It did. But it's good to challenge yourself. And if you've got an understanding of something that you're passionate about and you realize you've got the tools to see it through, it would have been a disservice to myself if I hadn't taken the chance. I mean, the worst thing I could have done would have been to not do it at all. Failure right. wasn't wasn't the worst part of what could happen. Right. I had a very understanding and supportive boss and husband and people in my life that it wouldn't have been a failure. It just would have been an indication that now wasn't the right time. And for those of us who've lived in Tallahassee for a while, we know that Barbara's caution was because of the current political climate that, you know, the the former, the previous CEO had been removed because of indictments related to a broader FBI investigation. So when you come into that position, did, did that give you pause? And did you feel like there was a real trust issue you had to overcome? How did all that work into um, the job when you when you took it? Because I'd been on the board prior to, um, I knew what the financial situation of the organization was. I knew the challenges that needed to be overcome there. And I knew that reinstilling trust in our organization was paramount. Um, so uh, it was absolutely that Barbara understood the challenges that lied ahead. Um, and they did, and they were there. And it was a very, very difficult six months of combing through every document just to be able to prove there was no affiliation with the organization, um, both to myself and to others, and right. to say, actually, this is what we do and who we are. It was a lot of compiling data that hadn't existed before about the businesses that were downtown. It was kind of rewriting the the mission and the sponsorship goals and sort of meeting with people to say, here's why you can and should trust this organization. Here's what we do for the community and what we want to do. It was a lot of sort of selling people on a dream. Um, but there had been really good people that had come before me. Um, I often think that Jay Revel really didn't get the credit that he deserved mm -hmm. for how much he was able to accomplish in that position at such a young age. So I think right. when you've got precedents like that, and there was another director, Marilyn Larson, um, that just did incredible infrastructure improvements and projects within the organization. I mean, it's not a sexy thing, but she was able to get really good alleyway um, maintenance and signage put up to say who's here and organized business owners in a meaningful way, um, got memorial walks placed down. So you just, you looked at the, the things that the organization had accomplished and where it could go. And it was an exciting challenge to be able to move things forward. Right. I don't think we have time for the full 17 page plan, but Are you I, sure? yeah, <laughs> pretty sure. Um, Actually, we have all the time in the world. We can go through it point <laughs> by point. Um, but I do want to give you the opportunity to kind of give us the elevator pitch. And because Downtown Improvement Authority is not something everyone understands. So just real quickly, if you wouldn't mind just kind of telling us what, what it's all about and what your job is. Yeah. I mean, the, the Downtown Improvement Authority is 
essentially a quasi-governmental special taxing district where the businesses therein pay the taxes to see the changes within that district. Um, so it's it's 630 businesses and 500 residents and um, 250 buildings that kind of comprise the urban core. It's much smaller than what most people think of as downtown, but it has 34 restaurants and 11 museums and galleries and 10 different retail shops. So there's a lot more there, um, but it also has a number of incredible community events and public parks and spaces that make it a really great place for all of our community, not just the 20,000 employees that happen to work there. Um, so it's it's been a great year of sort of building this in, reinstilled enthusiasm for downtown and what it should be. Do you see some momentum being built in downtown as far as excitement and support and kind of, I know that over time, you know, there, there have been efforts and people get excited and then it kind of wanes, but do you see things moving forward in a way that you're encouraged about at this point? Without question. Um, I think in a way that I almost didn't imagine yeah. um, being able to see how grateful people are and enthusiastic they are about, let's do this next and let's do this again. And this was great. Um, it's a lot to manage because we are a really small team, but it's a really good team. So it's it's great to be a part of building something bigger um, with the momentum that we have. And I think we'd be silly to not continue that. You know, that in some cases, the, the snowball effect is the best thing that could happen um, for our organization, as long as we can keep that momentum going and continue to drive value back to those businesses and the residents to ensure that the downtown is something that they want to be a part of. Right. So you live downtown with your husband, Christopher. So tell me how you met. And well, you already did. You met in high school when mm -hmm. he took it upon, he went rogue and ran against one of your friends for Leon student government. He did. So, but you said you eventually forgave him. So I assume your paths crossed again at some point. They did. Um, and it, it's, a very bittersweet thing. Um, my first week back in Tallahassee on the job at Beavis, um, Brooks Rogers was killed by a drunk driver. And that was one of the first families that I um, worked with at Beavis. I'd known Brooks since he was in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was a real difficult, heartbreaking tragedy that had just occurred. Um, and Brooks was also Christopher's best friend. Okay. Um, so they came into the funeral home to spend some time with Brooks and he hugged me and I went home that night and called my mom and said, I think I've got to quit. I said, I think this job's getting to me. I just let Christopher Emanuel hug me. That is something I would never do. And she's like, you're right. You're emotionally distraught. Let's reassess in the morning. <laughs> um, but that was, that was just one of those examples of, um, how far we've actually come. But he wrote me my first thank you note because of that. Um, and he had very good penmanship and it was a very kind letter. So did you not really like each other in high school? Not at all. Really? No. Um, mortal enemies, arch nemesis. Really? Yes. Um, I have never More felt... than just the election thing? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but maybe it was. Oh, high school politics it was. Yeah, I guess. I'm being naive about that. Right, right. It was It was everything at the time. Um, and uh, I have... I have never felt indifferent 
about him. Um, <laughs> so you went from really disliking him to falling in love. There was nothing in between. There was absolutely never anything in between. So, so you questioned everything when you let him hug you that I, time, right? I did. Yeah, that was um, that was sort of a, a wild. <laughs> Who knew that that would be so wild, right? Right. Um, but it it was something that was really life changing. Um, and to get that thank you note from him that had talked about how much we'd both changed and how kind I was. Oh. Um, it was a really sweet gesture uh, in a very difficult time for both of us and, and certainly for the Rogers family who we've both remained extraordinarily close to, mm-hmm. which I couldn't be more grateful for. Um, but at a at a honorarium for Brooks a year later, he was there and I'd still had the thank you note up on my desk. <laughs> And he asked me out. And so we've always sort of joked that Brooks is our matchmaker and there wasn't anything yeah. else in the world that would have brought us together. Yeah. Um, we're very grateful to him for that. Right. And I imagine that moment, especially just coming back to Tallahassee, being faced with probably the toughest circumstances almost possible for him to reach out there. I imagine that that really meant a lot. It did because I understood how tough that was for him as well. Um, so for him to take a moment to say something nice to someone that had really never been nice to him before was a really Mm. big move. Yeah. So you're saying he wasn't pining for you either all those years? Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you worked things out. Yeah. He's, he's a a tremendous person. Um, One of the people I think that I admire the most and he pushes me probably more than anyone else ever has. Um, He's a big, dreamer. So that's something that is annoying sometimes, um, <laughs> but really infectious. Right. Well, I saw on your, uh, I guess it was on your resume, you called him your chief volunteer. <laughs> so what does that mean? <laughs> um, like it or not, it's a very poorly paid position for him, but he's he's kind of always been my confidant in a lot of things in life. Um, but he's also the first person that when I get these bright ideas. He's right there ready to help me implement them. Right. So sometimes um, he ends up spending a lot of hours downtown as well, kind of talking to different vendors right. and business owners and helping move coolers from events. And gotcha. he's a great, great, you know, chief volunteer. And you are expecting an addition to your family here soon. Yes. Which I know that will date the podcast at some point, but <laughs> I still want to. It's I, that that's a about as, as significant event as there is. So I wanted to address that. So first, congratulations. Thank you. And um, when are you due? Um, in March. So we'll see how far we get before <laughs> yes. the podcast airs. That's right. Um, but we're you know we made an effort to make downtown more family friendly ourselves. Yeah. So we're we're bringing a child along that's nice. for the ride. Yeah. Final two questions, sure. and then we're out. Uh, looking back, what is the one thing or person that changed or altered the trajectory of your life to this point? Again, I can't pinpoint it to one thing, but I I think what has empowered me the most is the fact that while I still am very young, um, I've worked for about 20 years now, and I've only ever had one boss that was a man. 
Um, every opportunity that I've been given, I've been given by women and largely by women business owners. And I think that that's something um, that is a pretty unique and incredible opportunity from, you know, bussing tables at Jenny's lunchbox, um, getting hired by Jenny herself to working with um, Carrie McNeil at Cole Couture and uh, Charlotte Brand at Florida Outdoor Advertising Association and then Susie Mazolik at Beavis Funeral Home and Barbara Boone with Leadership Tallahassee under Sue Dix Leadership at the Chamber. It's um, a pretty strong lineup. It's an incredible lineup. Yeah. And so I, I think sometimes I get this sense of, of course I can do it because I look at the women that have come before me and they have really laid the groundwork and left an incredible impression on what the possibilities are. And it, it's never felt limiting. So I think I'm really, really lucky in that regard. Um, I've got, you know, sometimes I joke, but I've got three moms. Um, my When my stepfather married my mother, that was his fourth marriage. Um, and in the, the Brady Bunch way her family's worked out, his two other ex-wives are now just as close to me as, as my own mother. Um, so I've kind of always had these incredibly strong female figures that have shaped limitless possibilities for who I could become and never told me I couldn't do this because of who I was. And I, I learned that myself, that I didn't have to be set back in that way. Um, but I've had incredible women come before me, and I'm so appreciative of that. Okay, final question. This podcast is named How I Got Here. So where do you think here will be for you in three to five years from now? I mean, I ask myself every day, how did I get here? I feel very lucky to be where I'm at. And I hope, you know, that the role that I'm in right now is one that I'm in for for a substantial amount of time. Um, but I hope to look around and see some of those things. Um, you know, the exciting thing is that three to five years, that is our community's bicentennial. So we get to all reimagine together what our community looks like and work towards those goals that everyone wants to see happen in Tallahassee. You know, I hope we're all much more confident about where we've come from as a community and we can name five historical facts and five influential people and five celebrities that came from Tallahassee and hopefully we'll all be, you know, celebrating with them how far we've come as a community. But I think it's a really exciting thing to look ahead at where we could all be um, because I've, I've never really thought that I got here alone. I think I've had a great group of support um, helping push me through. So I, I imagine those people will still be there um, and we'll, we'll be building a better community together. Right. And you'll probably have a three to five year old along for the ride. That is the hope. Yes. We don't want only children. So hopefully there's you know, a growing family. Maybe we'll get a two-bedroom condo at that point. Now you're talking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that was Elizabeth Emanuel. At the end of our interview, after I stopped recording, it occurred to me to ask her one more question. I asked her if she ever thought she would return to the funeral business. Without hesitation, she said she was sure she would when the time was right. She loved it too much to never do it again. And I'm certain that if she does, the families she cares for will be grateful she did. Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Thanks to my amazing staff at Fiori Communications who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fioricommunications.com.